This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode where we're going to go deep into fixed income, which is a topic area we haven't covered much and we've got one of the best in the business to take us on this journey. Absolutely. It is our pleasure to welcome Christopher Joy to the show. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a real privilege. So Chris has quite an extensive and incredible resume. So I'll just go through some of the key highlights here. Firstly, he is the Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at Coolabar Capital Investments, which we'll dig into a bit. He founded Coolabar Capital in 2011 and leads the portfolio management effort there that has produced one of Australia's top short-term fixed interest capabilities. Chris is also a contributing editor with the Australian Financial Review and well-known as one of Australia's leading economists policy advisors and fund managers. He's previously worked for Goldman Sachs in London and Sydney, the Reserve Bank of Australia, and was the founder of an award-winning research and investment group, Rismark International. In 2009, the Australian newspaper selected Christopher as one of Australia's top 10 emerging leaders in its economic wealth category. In 2007, Chris was selected by the Bulletin magazine as one of Australia's 10 smartest CEOs and by BRW magazine as one of Australia's top 10 innovators. So a massive resume and uh, we're looking forward to getting stuck into some pretty fascinating conversation. Sounds good, guys. Hit me. <laughs> so, Chris, we like to start with a bit of a game. Uh, we call the game Overrated or Underrated, where we'll throw out some different themes and indexes and get your thoughts on them. So, we'll get stuck into that now. To kick it off, Overrated or Underrated, the NASDAQ 100 index. Don't have a view. Do I have to say Overrated or Underrated? <laughs> no, you don't have to. You don't have to at all. Yeah. No, no view is perfectly acceptable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no view. Okay. Overrated or Underrated, the concept of index investing? Massively overrated. Okay. Any reason why? Well, that's a big topic in and of itself, but I think indexing is good for diversification purposes, but it's also price agnostic investing. So it's completely ignorant of fundamentals. And, you know, you can be buying businesses simply because they're Ponzi schemes and you've got this self-fulfilling prophecy that is really seriously divorced from its underlying earnings and its intrinsic value. So indexing definitely has a role to play, but I think it's massively overhyped. Nice one. So obviously the coronavirus has been the biggest topic for everyone over the last few months. So overrated or underrated the impact that coronavirus is having and will have on the Australian economy? appropriately rated. Okay. So in the next stage down, overrated or underrated the Australian monetary response to COVID-19? Probably a little underrated insofar as a lot of people say to me, I'm so confused what's happening in markets. Like, I don't understand why share prices are rising when, you know, the economy is cratering, we're in a recession. And that's really about the battle that central bank liquidity (coughs) is having with fundamentals. Mm. And so therefore, I would say that you know the monetary policy reaction function or the impact of quantitative easing is definitely underappreciated in some circles. 
So I'm interested if we move to the US and we get your thoughts on the Fed's response there. Overrated or underrated what the Fed has done in response to COVID-19? Definitely underrated. I mean, again, in late February this year, we were arguing we were going to have a big liquidity and solvency crisis. We argued at that time that we needed an extreme QE response from the central banks. They initially disagreed with us. So in early March, the RBA and Fed both cut, but we got no QE. And in fact, the Fed ruled out QE on the 3rd of March. And then since that time, we've had the mother of all bond buying programs. And we've had QE in almost every imaginable form, which is really what has been the key driver of markets in the period since. Um, So I think the Fed's interventions are probably underappreciated and underrated in a lot of sectors. So then what are your comments to the whole don't fight the Fed quote that gets thrown around? (laughs) Uh, Overrated or underrated? Underrated. I basically bet a billion dollars. I spent about a billion dollars over late February and March on the presumption that we shouldn't fight the Fed or the RBA for that matter, and that we would get the mother of all beta rallies, by which I mean market rallies, and particularly in my market, credit rallies as QE crushed credit spreads and fueled massive price inflation in the value of the bonds that I held. So mm. that was my central hypothesis. At the at the end of February, we thought COVID would be a massive liquidity insolvency crisis that would necessitate extreme QE and then that QE would crush credit spreads and would be positive for equity beta. So I think a lot of guys got the first half of March right. So there were some hedge funds that were short, had great returns in March, and I think a lot of them have really struggled over the last three months because they just thought that this would continue to get worse and worse and worse. And as we forecast in March, infections peaked in early April in Western Europe, in Australia, in the US, curves flattened quickly and we actually came out of containment more rapidly than most people expected and that was a big fill for markets but obviously now we're juggling sort of struggling with the specter of these secondary outbreaks in victoria and long first waves in places like texas and california so we're keen to get more into the fixed income market and you know what you've sort of been saying a bit later in the interview. But if we move to another asset class, which gets a lot of headlines in Australia, overrated or underrated Australian residential property? I'd probably say appropriately rated. I mean, I think it's the largest source of household wealth. You know, 70% of households own their own house. So it's incredibly important. I think that people often think that you know we're obsessed with housing in Australia, but I think if you go to most other markets... They talk about bricks and mortar almost as much as we do. So, yeah, I would say appropriately rated. Overrated or underrated emerging markets? No real view. I suspect overrated. I don't have a kind of high conviction view on emerging markets, but I know that in some circles, again, it's a key topic of conversation and people are always warning about the spectre of emerging market blowouts, but I would argue that most of the time they're not that important. Now, last one to round out this game, an asset class that gets a lot of controversial answers, overrated or underrated, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Don't really have a view. Again, I am not an expert on this at all. I think it's an interesting topic. I do think that if all this money printing by central banks in order to buy government bonds and in order to keep rates low, ultimately, over a period of decades, leads to hyperinflation, what that will mean is that we don't trust traditional currency as a medium of exchange. And that could fuel huge demand for alternative currencies like Bitcoin et al. So I think it's a really interesting topic, but guys, I'm just not an expert on it. And as you can see already, I don't like to talk about stuff. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. So Chris, we'll move on to your background. And we always like to start these interviews by hearing the story of people's first investment. We generally find there's a good story or a good lesson that comes out of that. So to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Yeah, and I will uh, emphasize again, I haven't read any of the questions you guys sent me <laughs> beforehand. So this is all <laughs> truly stream of consciousness. Yeah, it was Well, this a... will be the easiest question you get. It's going to get harder <laughs> from there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so for any listeners, this is, uh, this is very much live. <laughs> they, I was worded up on the questions, but 
I said to the guys before the interview, I'm not, I, you know, consciously said to myself, I'm not going to uh, try and take, uh, I won't avail myself of that advantage. Um, <laughs> I think the company was called Carpenter, it's either Takarati or Carpenter Pacific. And it was basically a resources company. And my broker at uni had tipped me off that he thought this was a, a great opportunity. It did really well. And I made money on it. And as everyone does, thought I was a bit of a genius. But frankly, I didn't move beyond that first trade. So I'm not very, um, well, I'm probably not that different, but I'm not the sort of person that feels comfortable really doing something seriously unless I have a profoundly deep understanding of what I'm doing. So I've never been a gambler. You know, when you're kids, like at school, all my mates used to go to the TAB and you know, <laughs> roll the dice. And I had friends who were also really into casinos. That was never for me because I think intrinsically I understood that I didn't have an edge. And this resources sort of speculative play, I think was of that ilk. Yes, it was good. Yes, I thought I was pretty smart. But I think on one level, I also intuited that, you know, I didn't have any competitive advantage. So I was definitely, you're not going to hear from me. I was not a, you know, trader from the age of eight. And, you know, I think the stereotypical investing guru story sort of starts with that sort of genesis, you know, that you're born into this preternatural trading behavior. And even though you know, we would be the largest trader of Aussie credit locally and you know, potentially globally, and we're very active, like we're trading typically 30 to 50 times a day and typically about 60 to 70, $70 million a day. Obviously, I am a trader today. I think I came to that position somewhat circuitously and it wasn't necessarily sort of ineluctable or inevitable from day dot, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. So Chris, then would you say that you have an investing philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. Just taking a step back, I'm a little bit intellectually anti-authoritarian or a little bit intellectually iconoclastic in the sense that you know one of my philosophies is always to question the status quo and always assume that no matter how sort of foreign the topic is, bring to bear fresh eyes without prejudice and I apply really intense intellectual horsepower that you can always unearth new and important insights. And I think that's a bedrock of everything we do today. You know, I love, for example, hiring people from other industries, no background in finance or markets. We have a lot of data scientists in our business. I'd say in, across my kind of 23-person team, we'd have 10 engineers, mathematicians, physicists, and actuaries. And those guys can be highly effective at unlocking investment puzzles without any you know, prior knowledge. So I'm a big believer in coming to a problem and trying to solve it without any extant information. So I guess that's one part of our philosophy. Mm. A second part of our philosophy, I guess, is that we believe some markets are inefficient. Not all markets, but some. And I was actually at Sydney University. I wrote my honours dissertation on whether you could systematically exploit market inefficiencies. And Sydney Uni actually sent me to Yale, Harvard and New York University to present my thesis to effectively the best minds in the academic business who wrote at that time on efficient markets. A guy called Marty Gruber at New York University, Will Gertzman at Yale, Tefano at Harvard, uh, Zeckhauser at Harvard, uh, a guy called Andre Schleifer at Harvard. And what I learned through that experience was that as a very young kid who'd only been looking at this topic for 12 months, I felt that intellectually I could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best in the world, right? So that's, again, reinforcing the insight that we're all capable of unique insight uh, or unique and original thought if um, we really dedicate ourselves to the cause. What I also discovered in that analysis was that in the Aussie equities market, which is what I was focusing on, there did seem to be organisations that were persistent systematic winners and there did seem to be alpha that could be generated over time. So that market over the time intervals that I studied it didn't seem to be semi-strong form efficient. That is to say, you could get these consistent winners. And then as I grew over time, I learned more about the over-the-counter bond market. And in my market, there's about a trillion dollars globally of Aussie investment grade bonds on issue that you can trade. So these are bonds issued by the banks, BHP, Woolworths, Coles, and so on. And that market's very opaque. So whilst about 500 billion trades in the secondary market every year, when you buy and sell those bonds, the prices and the volumes and the transactions are not reported anywhere. 
So, you know, I've bought and sold 8.6 billion in the last six months. I know the price and volume of my trades. My counterparty can see those trades, but no one else in the market can. So it's a very opaque market. The over-the-counter credit market is also a market that's populated by very passive participants. It's not like equities. If you're a really smart guy and you want to make money, generally you go into the equities market because you can get the highest returns. But equity fund managers also charge much higher fees than those charged by fixed income investors. So you've got an opaque market that is replete with information asymmetries and also a market that's populated by not necessarily the best investment brains in the world. So the competition is not as fierce as what you face in interest rates, in currencies and in equities. So my philosophy is that overarching, kind of the overarching thematic there, guys, is that you can add value through asset selection. You can beat the market over time. And active investing works, even though there's a role also for passive or indexed investing, but you need to pick the asset class. So equities, for example, is very efficient. It's extremely hard to get sustained edge in equities. Not impossible, but it's hard. In credit, which is my market, it's a hell of a lot easier. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, Chris, that's a fascinating investment philosophy, and uh, we're very excited to dig into some of those elements of the credit markets that you just touched on. But if we can take a step back and uh, go through your journey at Coolabar... As you said there, your expertise is in fixed interest or credit markets. For someone who's new to that topic, can you start at the beginning and just explain what you mean by fixed interest and credit? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a number of, I guess, for those who don't know anything about bond markets, there's a number of different ways you can think about it. So one way would be just to think about it, the typical home and a first-time buyer might have a 10% deposit. That's the equity. And they might have a 90% loan from CBA. That's the debt. Now, in theory, you could buy and sell those loans. And that's really what bonds are. Bonds are debt instruments. They're loans. And they come in many different shapes and sizes. Another way of looking at it is take CBA. Everyone's familiar with CBA's shares on the ASX. But what you probably don't realize is that is only about 5% of CBA's funding. So when you get a home loan from CBA, $5 comes from the shareholders. The other $95 comes from basically people CBA borrows from. Now, about 60% of that $95 comes from bank deposits. So when you invest in a bank deposit, you're lending money to the bank. And another circa 40% comes from bank bonds. So CBA issues bonds to raise money, and then it takes that money and makes loans to households and businesses. Now, many of those bonds are tradable. So on the ASX, you sometimes see them. So we have these things called hybrids. That's about a 40 to $50 billion market on the ASX. And they're basically like perpetual bonds. They rank ahead of shares in the capital structure. They rank behind deposits. So if CBA blows up, the depositors get paid out first, then the senior bondholders, then the subordinated bondholders, then the hybrid holders, then the shareholders. 
And in my business, we're trading all those different securities. So we're trading the deposits, the senior bonds, the sub-debt, and the hybrids, and we're looking for mispricings. You know, to give you, again, another kind of sense of the return opportunity, which is probably more interesting, right now, you know, the RBA cash rate is you know, 0.25%. And you know, maybe in a savings account at a bank, you might get 05 to 0.1%. In a TD, you might get 1%. In a senior bond with a regional bank, BOQ or Bendigo, maybe you could earn, say, 1.2%. In one of their subordinated bonds from, say, the major banks right now, you could probably earn 2.4%. And on a hybrid today, they'll pay you about 3.6%. And then if you buy the bank shares, you'll get a dividend yield. And you guys would know more about this than me, but grossed up for franking, you know, you're going to get probably high single digits. So that's what we call the capital structure. You know, lowest ranking is shares, then hybrids, then sub-debt, then senior bonds, then deposits. Above deposits, we actually have something called a super senior secured bond that the banks issue and there's other securities but it's that world which is actually much bigger than the equity market if you think about a cba only five percent of this funding comes from equities 95 percent is coming from debt it's that bond market that i trade in it's a fascinating market and one that we haven't really gone too deep in and mm. it definitely seems like it's you know as you explained it uh it's a lot more opaque. It's not as public as the equities market, which uh, Bryce and I are much more familiar with. Why is that, though, I wonder? Is there a reason for that, Chris? Yeah, there is. Uh, it's actually a really good question. And Josh Frydenberg has uh, a politician, Jason Falinski, looking at this right now. But it's kind of funny because the hybrid market is retail, right? You can buy hmm. hybrids in $100 lots on ASX. However, in the unlisted bond market or the so-called over-the-counter or OTC bond market, the minimum parcel size is $500,000. And that's kind of what really restricts that market to high net worths and instos. So it's the ability to trade you know, $100 parcels that really locks out retail. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, feel, it feels a bit backwards in a way because as you explained, you know, bonds are higher up the capital structure than equity. And so you know, in the worst case scenario, they're less risky for the, the owners of it. And yet- for the everyday investor, they're so much harder to access. Mm. It, it feels backwards in a way. Totally. I mean, I've actually made that point many times in my AFR columns. You can just quick plug. You can read my AFR columns online every Friday or in print on Saturday. You know, I've had stockbrokers say to me, it's easier for me to sell Telstra shares than it is much safer Telstra senior bonds to mums and dads, which is us about, as you say. Yeah. So yeah, Chris, you started Coolabar, as you mentioned, because you saw this inefficiency and you saw an ability to deliver alpha or you know deliver differentiated returns in this market. Since you started Coolabar in 2011, have you seen any changes in the Australian bond market? Are you still seeing that inefficiency that you identified back in 2011? Yeah, I think it's just as inefficient. It's grown in size. So it's definitely increased dramatically in size. There is definitely more retail participation. Like today, I just put more than $100 million into a NAB hybrid, and that NAB hybrid was an over-the-counter or unlisted hybrid. And it's only the second time that the banks have issued OTC hybrids. Normally, they issue them on the ASX. And so we're getting more retail participation. My point would be, I guess, that a lot of the investors in that unlisted NAB hybrid are actually families, you know, smaller institutional investors like you know, charities, councils, and high net worth individuals. And I think that because of the equity volatility that we've seen you know, in the GFC when shares fell in 50, 60% in March 2020, when they were off, you know, peak to trough 30, 40%, because of that, mums and dads are definitely looking for more stable sources of income. You know, they're looking for, I think, products that provide returns you know, that are better than TDs, but also products that provide returns that are in that sort of 4 to 6% range, so much higher than cash, but potentially lower than equities without the huge swings in valuation or volatility that you see in shares. Yeah, it's a funny one. You mentioned there the sort of 4 to 6% returns. It feels like the bond market these days yields are very low. I think I was reading a stat before this interview that 90% of developed market government bonds are currently yielding below 1%. 
Australian the Australian ten year bond I think is at point nine percent. How is this current market where yields are so low and there's you know so much central bank activity in this market? How is it trading bonds in today's market? Yeah, so it's very interesting. Obviously, I mean, I think in terms of the yields you can get, I mentioned that we invested over a hundred million dollars into a NAB hybrid today. Now that's paying four point one percent per annum. So that's a pretty kind of juicy return. It's investment grade, so it's rated um, by S&P triple B minus, which is quite a good rating. And that same security 12 months ago was probably paying about um, 2.7 to 3%. So you're actually getting a better return today than you were getting 12 months ago. Back in 2007, that sort of security was paying a lot less in terms of the margin it offers above cash. So whilst that security is offering a margin of about 3.75% above cash, roughly. Back in 2007, major bank hybrids were paying about 1.25% above cash. It's a little bit confusing because in my market, when we talk about cash, there are many different cash benchmarks. There's something called the bank bill swap rate. There's the RBA target cash rate, which is 25. Then there is um, something called the actual RBA cash rate, which is less than 25. So it can be a little bit confusing. But the long and the short of it is you can still get very attractive yields on instruments that are safer than equities. If we move up the capital stack into, say, subordinated bonds issued by the big banks, as I mentioned earlier, you know, major bank subject right now is paying yields of about 2.3, 2.4% in. So again, you know, above the target cash rate, that's sort of like 2.2-ish you know, percent above the, the target cash rate. The question is how liquid and how safe and secure are these assets compared to what you guys are used to talking about, which is obviously equities. So one way of thinking about that is to look at worst case drawdowns. And the good thing is we've just had one of those. So the movement that we saw in March in terms of its speed and in terms of the what we call uh, credit spreads, which is the return you get paid above cash in order to invest in a bond. So that's how we measure the risk of a bond, that the, or the risk premium that a, a bond or a hybrid pays you. The move in spreads was bigger and more dramatic in some of these sectors than we've ever seen before. But on a total return basis, if you look at Aussie shares were down you know, from end February through to end March, I think exactly 21%. If you measure it from 20 February, Aussie shares, I think were down about 29%. If you look at the hybrid market, the hybrid market in March was down 4.5%. So it really provided a huge amount of downside protection. In terms of liquidity, in March, we saw as much as, or as much as $120 million of hybrids trade each day. So you had liquidity. And then if you look at total returns, since uh, the end of 2015, interestingly, major bank hybrids have substantially outperformed major bank equities with less than a quarter of the return volatility or you know, return variation. So it is true today that in certain sectors of our bond markets, you can get returns or credit spreads that are actually much better than what you could get a year ago and also much better than what you could get in 2007, notwithstanding that cash rates are at their lowest level on record. And as you mentioned, government bond yields are also near their lowest levels in recorded history. So, Chris, I'm interested in getting quite practical because, you know, for Bryce and I looking at equities, knowing what's available and at what price is is quite straightforward. You can basically Google any share price and you can get it automatically. I feel like the for you uh, trading, you know, fixed income, the price discovery process and even just understanding, you know, what's being offered to the market is a lot more difficult. It feels like it's a lot more about who you know and you can pick up the phone and call and figure out who's who's trying to sell what, who's trying to buy what. Can you talk us through like what that process is when you're trying to move hundreds of millions of dollars a day? How do you actually figure out where the market is and, and who's buying and who's selling? Yeah, mate, that's a really, really bloody good question that I haven't actually been asked really too often, uh, but it's a very important question. So most of the stuff we trade is OTC. We're very active in the ASX hybrid market. And in that market, it's much more straightforward because they're exchange traded. You can see the depth in the market. We trade with many ASX brokers. We can communicate with them verbally to understand if they have sort of liquidity outside of the market. And it's a generally more transparent forum. In the bigger OPC bond market, it really is about who you know in the sense of who you're onboarded to trade with. So we're onboarded with 40 to 50 counterparties. 
we trade globally, and it's a process of iteratively through the day, going to those counterparties and saying, where is your bid and offer in the following you know, three, four lines? And then understanding the depth through that kind of recursive or iterative process. So it's much more manual, it's much more opaque, and there really is huge liquidity lying in wait, but it's quite a, a both an art and a science tapping into that liquidity. So you need to have those connections and also you need to have counterparties that want to trade with you, that want to offer liquidity. And sometimes those counterparties need to go to their clients and go through a price discovery process. So, you know, to give you some examples, today I've sold about $20 million of senior bonds and my traders went out to the market and said, where are your markets in these, you know, two Macquarie Bank senior bond lines, the 824s, and the February 25s. And the market came back to us and they said, well, our bids and offers are here. And we took the two best bids, asked them if they could improve. One improved and we said, okay, we're happy to trade at that level. So we sold that counterparty 20 million. That's kind of the process we undertake. It's much more, I guess, intensive than what you have to do in equities. It's actually very hard to digitally execute. Mm. So what, what, the way we will consummate these trades is We'll be talking to the counterparties on Bloomberg. We'll agree in writing the price and the volume, and then we'll send each other an electronic ticket, something called a voice confirmation or a VCON, and that will definitively confirm the details of the transaction, which the counterparty will affirm, and it goes through to settlement. It's much easier in the bond market to do or to be passive. So most fund managers in fixed income will run very low-intensity, low-activity portfolios, They'll typically just buy fairly blindly 300, 500, 1,000 bonds and they'll hold them to maturity. And therefore, the only return they'll get is the yield on that bond. That's not what we do. We're very active. We tend to hold more focused portfolios of 50 to 100 securities. We tend to focus on really high-grade businesses that have no intrinsic risk of default and businesses that are you know, typically government guaranteed or monopolies or oligopolies, <clears throat> and firms that issue very highly rated and liquid securities. So no matter what happens, we can trade in them. So again, you know, in March, there was a lot of illiquidity in the corporate bond market. A lot of people had portfolios where they couldn't get a bid and they were de facto frozen. It was a huge problem, not just in March, in you know, April and May too. Whereas you know, we traded about a billion dollars of securities in March alone. You know, last month, I think we traded 1.6 billion. So we specialize in liquid securities. And what we're trying to do is not pick up the yield so much. We're happy to accept the yield, but we want to get capital gains like an equity investor does. And the way we generate capital gains is by finding bonds that are mispriced. And what that means is bonds that are paying too much interest for their risk. So the analogy would be like a U-bank term deposit. We've all had TDs, you roll your TDs, and every, you know, so often you'll get a special. So whether it's from ING Direct or Ubank, but let's just say the normal TD rate today is 1%, and Ubank comes out with a 2% special. Well, Ubank's wholly owned by NAB, it's guaranteed by NAB, the TD itself is government guaranteed. Once Ubank gets enough money at that 2% rate, it will drop the 2% rate to say 1%, the normal rate. And if you could trade that term deposit and you bought a bunch of the 2% TDs, once they pulled the TD rate and it went back to 1%, if you could then sell those TDs, the 2% TDs to your next door neighbor on a 1.5% rate, he'd be paying you more than 100 cents in the dollar. So you get a capital gain. And that's what we're doing all day, every day. We're looking for those mispricings, looking to identify those capital gain opportunities and looking to generate really high returns from fixed income when yields can be very low. Sounds like there's a whole bunch of moving parts that go on in there, Chris, and, you know, might be an opportunity for a tech fund to come in and do some serious disruption. Do you ever see that this will become more transparent or do you think this is just the way it, this market works? Yeah, it's super funny, again, that you ask that. I mean, we often wonder whether we will get digitization, whether we will see what, what is called e-trading, which is kind of what we do on the ASX. With yeah. There are movements afoot around the world to do more e-trading. There's uh, definitely been a proliferation of um, so-called bond trading platforms, but the vast majority of all the weight or size or volume in fixed income in credit goes through what are called voice channels. So that's like me talking to somebody and then sending them that voice confirmation. And there does seem to be a lot of ingrained resistance to e-trading. 
So I think for the foreseeable future, yeah, it's going to remain as is. What that means, though, importantly, is there are no algos really in credit markets. There are no CTAs or systematic traders in credit markets Mm. because it's very, very hard to digitally execute in size. You can digitally execute credit trading on different platforms. Here in Australia, we have something called Yield Broker, and you can digitally trade on Yield Broker, but not much volume goes through that platform for a variety of reasons. So, Chris, we're interested in understanding what the last few months have been like. We've obviously had a number of experts on the show that have told us what they're saying in equity markets and have spoken about the, you know, the fastest bear market in history and then the unbelievable recovery we've seen. We're interested to hear what your experience has been like in the credit markets and in the bond markets. You touched on it a little bit before that you were well positioned when things fell, but then you were also well positioned when things rose. So can you just add a bit of color to that and tell us what the last few months have been like for your traders at Coolabar and in the Aussie bond market more generally? Yeah, I mean, I can kind of spin it and tell you it was all perfect, but... <laughs> <laughs> we can leave it there if you want. <laughs> that wouldn't be the, the whole truth. So, like, if you look at the last three months, you know, we've we've done spectacularly well. Uh, in fact, four of our strategies rank in the top 20 in the world across, uh, I think, 25,000 products, according to a group called Evestment, which is one of the biggest insta-tracking sort of data agencies globally. So, you know, we've had fixed income strategies that are ostensibly low risk and, you know, low volatility and and liquid, crucially, very liquid, that in the three months to 30 June have returned as much as 9.2%, 8.2%, 6-point-something percent, 4-point-something percent, you know, all the way down to circa 2%. So the last three months have been spectacular for us. But going back in time, basically in January... We were de-risking aggressively. So I net sold 417 million of bonds in the month of January. We run some levered strategies. We delevered them. We lifted our weighted average credit rating to its highest level ever, which was AA minus. And we sold all our corporate bonds. So we literally held no corporate bonds. The only things we held were cash and bonds issued by government guaranteed banks. Uh, so obviously the majors, the regionals, and so on. Coming into February, we had built COVID tracking systems to measure every infection and every fatality globally for every country in the world, very sophisticated real-time data science systems. We also built COVID forecasting models for every country in the world. And, you know, I was fairly vocal in late February. I wrote in the AFR, COVID-19 will basically crush markets. It will precipitate a huge liquidity insolvency crisis. I told the Prime Minister this, the Treasurer, the RBA, APRA, and we were fairly, I guess, vigilant in communicating that view from late February through to mid-March. And the corollary was we felt that fiscal and monetary policy had to provide a bridge through QE and liquidity and stimulus to the economy and to business and to markets to that point where we could get vaccines or somehow deal with the virus, whether it's through antiviral therapeutics or other remedies. So that was our conviction in late February and early March. We were a little early, so I expected like massive wholesale QE to come week one or two in March. I was absolutely convinced. So we should probably have been shorter credit and hedged more aggressively in early March. The QE bazookas were sort of unfurled in the second half of March and had exactly the impact we expected. And I spent about a billion dollars buying bonds in March. And we have been selling every month ever since. So March itself was, you know, our performance was sort of, you know, run of the mill, very much middle of the road in terms of peers. It's really the massive outperformance we've generated over April, May and June, because I think we were one of the few groups globally that had a very clear vision that QE would crush spreads aggressively and therefore give rise to substantial capital gains in bond prices. And furthermore, that uh, the COVID-19 curves would flatten much more quickly than people expected. So it's been actually a really good year. We started the year with about, call it just over 3 billion of FUM, and today we're sitting at about 3.8 billion. So we've had net inflows. We did have some modest redemptions in March, but we had, I think, net inflows overall in March. And I certainly had Insta clients who gave me hundreds of millions of dollars in March to buy uh, assets at crazy cheap prices. So we've got securities, bonds and hybrids, many, like hundreds, if not thousands of trades we did in March, which have generated returns of up to 25, 26% over the next few months. 
we're not your normal manager that just runs one fund. We run a lot of customized solutions for Insta managers, so Insta accounts like super funds who want a tailored portfolio where they're not commingling their money. So we run separate mandates for those organizations. And I think this is public information. One of our clients is Catholic Super. And then the number one ranked super fund in Australia over one, two, and three years in fixed income. And again, this is all public. They use Coolabar Capital and they use a group called Ardea as their primary fixed income solutions. And they were a group that gave us money in March to really capitalize on the uh, totally unprecedented dislocations that we had seen. Mm. So let's move beyond COVID. And Chris, you're one of Australia's leading economists, and it sounds like that you've had an unbelievable tracking strategy for COVID. What else are you tracking now that you're finding particularly interesting? Yeah, so we've built some real-time tracking systems for global trade flows. Okay. So this is to look at trade between China and the rest of the world. We've been watching China closely for 10 years. Mm. I've been writing about China for about 10 years. And we are very, very concerned about basically the emergence of what we're calling Cold War 2.0. And I actually wrote in the AFR today that, uh, and I guess we're recording this on... Friday, 10th of July. 10th of July. 10th of July. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wrote today that, that I thought the probability of a major power conflict between China and the US over the next 10 years is somewhere between 25 and 50%. So what we're looking, we, well, I've actually hired six China advisors this year wow. um, to work with us and helping us understand who President Xi Jinping is, you know, what his aspirations and dreams are, and what the likely course of China-US relations will look like. Now, you know, one of our hypotheses is that we'll see substantial decoupling between China and the West, starting with the US, and our real-time trade tracking systems are documenting that. So we're, we're seeing trade flows between the US and China substantially decline. And we're seeing the US shift its trade to other low-cost countries, <clears throat> to countries like Vietnam, Mexico, and even Canada. Uh, and we think that all nationally security-sensitive industries will remove their supply chains from China. But we also think that other corporate supply chains will shift out of China because of concerns around the rule of law, property rights. You know, we've obviously seen these really new, but at the same time, you know, suffocating national security laws imposed on Hong Kong, which is creating a, a massive problem for the Hong Kongers. We have a, a kind of parallel hypothesis here that we're going to see a massive flight of top talent and capital out of Hong Kong and into countries like Australia, New Zealand, and other you know, um, desirable destinations. We also see, think we'll see flights of capital and people uh, from mainland China. And interestingly, you know, anecdotally, we're hearing lots of evidence of expat Australians who are living in the US and Europe who want to return to Australia. So one of our views is Australia could be a big winner out of all of this. We could wrest the mantle of the key you know, financial market away from Hong Kong. And we've certainly told the government, we told the Prime Minister and the Treasurer that we think they should ramp up immigration and really try and compete for that top talent and for those fat wallets so that we can bring the best brains in the business and all that moolah into our country, right? <laughs> and, um, and interestingly, ScoMo and Frydenberg have more or less announced exactly that. They've announced yeah. you know, uh, five-year visas for all Hong Kong students, and I think they're making you know, all sorts of accommodations to try and compete for the businesses that might be looking at relocating out of Hong Kong. So that, I think China-US relations is just such a huge topic. President Xi Jinping's a very interesting guy, 66 years old, 180 centimetres tall. <laughs> what bearing does that have on yeah. your calculations? <laughs> yeah, you got to let me finish, guys. Uh, this is a guy that I think, you know, China is no longer a one-party political state. It's a one-person political state. Xi is the strongest leader since Mao, but he's not who you think he is, and you can't predict China's behavior by applying a Western lens or a Western calculus. You need to understand who he is, and he's a guy that speaks no English. He speaks fluent Russian. He studied Marxism, Leninism, university repeatedly in his undergraduate degrees and in his doctoral degree, but he's also a guy that lived through the Cultural Revolution in China where his father was actually, um, so Xi is a princeling. His father was vice chair of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. He was also a propaganda chief. And his father was arrested and imprisoned when Xi was in his teens 
His sister was murdered during the Cultural Revolution. She himself was arrested. He was forced to live in a cave and work in a work camp. And he was kicked out of the CCP. He applied to rejoin, rejoin it 10 times. On the 10th time, he was accepted. And he's risen from that extreme adversity, leader of the most populous nation in the world and the most powerful leader since Mao. The most downloaded app on Chinese telephones today is something called Xi Jinping Thought, which is a modern analogue to Mao's Red Book. When Mao was leader of China, every household had to have a Red Book with Mao's sayings in it to really reinforce that indoctrination. So Xi is absolutely a communist. And he wants to impose socialism with Chinese characteristics on, frankly, the rest of the world. Because the problem for the CCP is it needs to eliminate anything it perceives as a threat to its power and longevity. And frankly, every, you know, most alternative nation states and certainly any liberal democratic state is a threat to CCP power. So that's why you're seeing the extraordinary frictions we're observing today where, you know, China's had this conflict with India and Kashmir <clears throat> with 63 casualties. They're, they've got low-intensity conflicts with Vietnam and the South China Sea. Uh, there's you know, risks of war over Taiwan with the US, huge cyber attacks here on Australia. It doesn't make sense to us because you know, you'd say to yourself, why is China trying to isolate and ostracize all of her key trading partners? <clears throat> but for Xi, who's an ideologue, who has a, a manifest sense of his own fatalistic personal destiny, he actually believes that, um, and he often says in his speeches, struggle is important in order to galvanize internal constituency. So she actively tries to create external crises to shore up popular support for the CCP's internal program. And like Putin in Russia, he's incredibly popular. And since Tiananmen Square, China has been running the world's most aggressive public indoctrination program to effectively brainwash the populace into believing or embracing CCP principles. So all of this is crucial to markets because if we have a major conflict between China and the US, it's going to be catastrophic for markets. And my job is to understand the probabilities around that. My mm -hmm. job is to understand what will Xi Jinping, what Xi Jinping do next? How will Trump or Biden react? And what does this mean for my portfolios? Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand this, if anything that I'm saying sounds alarmist or shocking, then you're basically not in the game. So I'm, I'm interested in how some of those macro insights that you guys are developing and you've got, you know, you've got your six China experts trying to really understand what's going on in China. How do those macro insights translate into an actual fixed income strategy that mm. you guys are running? If we take, you know, like one of the examples around trade flows and the, the economic decoupling that's happening between the West and China, how does that then translate into your strategies at Coolabar? Mm. Yeah, so that could mean many things. So think about it this way. If we think the Western economies are going to decouple from China, and if we think as we do, we're going to have two major global trading blocks, a Sino-led block with China and its Belt and Road countries and you know, the Western liberal democratic states. At the same time, we know that China has a huge demographic problem. Currently, there are seven workers per retiree. Within 30 years, there'll be uh, two workers per retiree. All of that combined with other economic analysis that we undertake suggests that China is probably, probably going to endure a multi-decade period of relative economic decline. At the same time, there are risks around that distribution of potential futures that involve war with the US. So what does that mean from a portfolio perspective? It basically means we don't want China exposure, right? So most of my peers, and certainly in most global fixed income portfolios, you'll have lots of Chinese banks, Chinese developers, you'll have South Korean banks and South Korean bond issuers. You'll probably have quite a few Japanese banks and Japanese issuers. And I wanna try and inculcate and insulate my portfolios from those risks. If I'm running a long short strategy, I might actually want to get short some of those risks to profit from situations where credit spreads could widen and the prices will fall. So we do actually run long short strategies. But it's really about, I think, the essential bedrock of you know, portfolio constructions, uh, portfolio construction from a first principles point of view, which is understanding the default risks in all of your credits. So what is the probability? that the issuer of the bond stops paying interest. Is CBA and ZNAB and Westpac going to default? Extremely unlikely. But could a Japanese property development firm that's issued in US dollars default on its US dollar debts? Happens all the time, right? Now, in fixed income portfolios, what normally happens is, you know, somebody will pull together 300, 500, 1,000 bonds, 
think they're diversified, but what we discovered in March, April and May, guys, with a lot of these credit portfolios is that having 500 global bonds wasn't diversified at all. Actually, they had a whole lot of correlated default risks. So they had lots of retailers you know, who are under huge commercial and office property that's under huge stress. They had lots of airlines that are under huge stress. A lot of the fixed income funds bought the senior bonds issued by Virgin that blew up and are worthless today. They have airports that have also got correlated risk. They've got bonds issued by lenders that lend to small businesses that have you know, huge stress. And that stress manifests as very low liquidity. What that means is in the portfolio, if you're trying to sell some of the bonds to get cash, you can't find a bid. So one of my jobs is to make sure I'm always holding very liquid assets that I can trade in and out of issued by businesses that are unquestionably strong. And in the case of the current you know, contingency apropos China, businesses that don't have huge dependencies on China. Fascinating. I think we could almost do another two episodes on this topic alone. Just before we close out with a couple of our final questions, Chris, you mentioned there that Xi Jinping is 180 centimetres tall. I'm pretty sure Donald Trump is 190 centimetres tall. And I'm interested to know if you're tracking the outcome of the US election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. Listen, we actually have some heavy duty. We've been thinking about doing some heavy duty data science work on the US election. But one of the one of the things that gives us pause on that is one of the areas that is very closely and carefully studied quantitatively is obviously polling data mm. and outcomes of elections. We did think uh, that ScoMo would win the last Australian election. Yeah. And I think we basically positioned several hundred million dollars of risk to, to capitalize on that. We shifted it into the hybrid market because we thought the franking debate <clears throat> would be resolved. That is to say that Labor wouldn't uh, remove uh, cash refunds on franking credits. Mm. And that was a really good trade. But that was more sort of a quantum mentor. It was a both quantum analysis combined with fundamental analysis and overarching intuition and, and instinct. I don't have a strong view on the outcome of the US election at this point in time. And frankly, I don't have a strong view of what it means for markets, whether Biden or Trump wins. And anyone who does have a strong view, I'm almost certain, doesn't know what they're talking about. So, you know, you've got this, like, I think he's almost 80 years old yeah. uh, guy that you know, allegedly has dementia or Alzheimer's <laughs> that's hiding away in a basement that is probably a very benign. It's crazy. A very benign, possibly banal choice, but benign, he's not a... You know, capricious and mercurial guy who's completely unpredictable like Trump. And then on the other hand, you have Trump, who's a mixed blessing. Like on the one hand, he's cut taxes, you know, again, notionally been very market friendly. But on the other hand, he's just like a bundle of contradictions that is constantly bombing financial markets with, uh, you know, the never ending Trump tape bombs. So the, you know, the, the, the Twitter mutterings and so on and so forth. So I think, uh, and the other thing that's interesting about Trump is he's actually been really geopolitically fascinating because he's actually been very, very good at dealing with China in terms of leading a much stronger and more assertive posture on calling out the issues that the US and the West have with China. You know, in some geopolitical circles has been you know, really well received. But on the other hand, he's also been inconsistent. You know, he, he hasn't been consistent in his dealings with Russia over the Crimea. Um, and we really don't know how any of this is going to fare. Some believe that the best friend Xi Jinping will ever have in Washington is Donald Trump. Others believe that you know, Trump would be a very bad outcome for the, for the Chinese and, and frankly for all of us. And remember, we haven't talked about the fact that Australia's biggest trading partner is China mm. and we're one of the few countries in the world that runs a trade surplus with China, which means we sell more to them than they sell to us. So the rest of the world, like most countries who run trade deficits with China and therefore import stuff from China, they don't need China as much as China needs them. So if they shift their supply chains out of China, they can go to you know, India, Vietnam, Cambodia, or most likely in-source. I think with robotics, automation, and AI, mm. you can see a huge amount of in-sourcing of supply chains. So you'll see the re this is like the, um, you know, the meme around make Australia make again, as in let's rebuild manufacturing through automation. And we don't need to worry about labor costs because labor is not a big part of the production process. And you know, countries like you know, India and China don't have such a big competitive advantage when it's all automated. So... Yeah, I think that 
Uh, I don't know where I was running with that one, buddy. But um, <laughs> I like make Australia make again. <laughs> that was good. I kind of uh, lost, lost my train of thought. But <laughs> That's I okay. Think I, was, I think I was saying that I actually have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Chris, you mentioned there that you predicted the shock outcome of the 2019 federal election. You're also known for a number of other... Well, uh, just, just on that note, that, that's all very faithfully documented in my AFR columns if you want to go back yes. and yes. verify <laughs> those statements because I, I repeatedly called the, the likelihood that, that SCOMO could prevail. But let's, let's move on. You're also known for a number of other macro forecasting successes. You, you called the housing boom between 2013 and 17 and then the correction between 17 and 19. So uh, as we get towards the end of the interview, we're interested in do you have any other bold predictions or big macro forecasts that you can uh, reveal to us on the show that you think will play out in the rest of 2020 or beyond? That haven't been in the AFR yeah. yet. <laughs> uh, short answer is no. I mean, just to get the... Uh, Track record, right? So yes, I got the the ten percent buffed ahead of other mainstream analysts between twenty seventeen and twenty nineteen. But we also were the first to call the bounce back in April twenty nineteen last year. We said prices would rise ten percent. We were the only analysts in the market that had that view, and that's exactly what happened. Between April uh, nineteen and April twenty twenty, prices were up about ten percent. I guess my one bold and brave call, which I think a lot of listeners might be interested in, is what will happen to house prices going forward. And I've been fairly stubbornly consistent since February in saying we expect prices to flatline or fall by up to 5% over this uh, short-term three- to six-month air pocket during COVID. And that's kind of played out. So basically, house prices nationally rose here in Australia in January, February, March, April. In May, they fell 0.4%. In June, they fell, I think, 0.8%. So they're down about 1.2%. And that's consistent. Now, the, the new outbreak here in, yeah, well, not here, but down in the south in Victoria is interesting. I mean, that's definitely going to put more downward pressure on housing market dynamics in the second biggest city in the country. So that's something to watch. And it is a long six-month lockdown for those Melbournians. But I think the controversial part of my call, um, despite the fact it's you know, much more sanguine or positive than every other analyst in the market who are all calling 10 20 30% falls, is that once the market stabilises, I believe the happen will continue again. So I've also consistently said I think prices, once they stabilise, will rise another 10 to 20%. Wow. Um, and and I, I uh, am regularly asked, you know, am I still of that view? And yes, I am still of that view. I'm sticking to my guns on that. I've also regularly said this is not my highest conviction ever call, but you know, I've certainly, I'm certainly the only person in Australia seems to think this is going to happen, and I'm happy to... Uh, there's no real new information. I mean, the housing market has bounced back. Uh, we've seen auction clearance rates jump up to 60 to 70%. There's been good, healthy auction clearance rates in Sydney and Melbourne. Unfortunately, the lockdown is really going to kibosh that for a period of time, for the next six or so weeks in that market. But I think as we come into 2021... I think housing will be one of the big winners of, of COVID-19 for several reasons. Mm. Firstly, it's tremendously uh, interest rate elastic. and We've seen mortgage rates fall by more than 75 to 150 basis points since uh, April last year. So that's a huge increase in purchasing power. Secondly, I think unemployment will come back down to about 67% uh, and stabilise at a, a reasonably sort of manageable level. Thirdly, I don't think we're going to see massive waves of, waves of distress selling or mortgage um, foreclosures. I think the banks will be very generous with their forbearance and give people a lot of time to work themselves out of any problems they may face. And then finally, I think you're going to see a lot of immigration, as we discussed earlier. I think you're going to see strong population growth as Australia competes for you know, the best brains globally. And I think you know, Australia is going to be a key destination of choice. I mean, think about Chinese students who are studying, studying around the world. They used to go, their first protocol was the U.S., to get their university education. But I don't see any Chinese students going to the US you know, going forward. So they're going to need other markets. Australia stands as potentially a key beneficiary. So I think that all goes well for Aussie housing. So I like Aussie housing as an investment class. Mm. Nice one. Well, Chris, we really appreciate your time. We do like to finish the interview with three quick final questions. Before we jump into those, if people want to read more of your work or follow you online, is there a particular platform or a particular place where they should be going to follow you and your work? Yeah, you can get me on Twitter at CJOAE. You can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty kind of prolific on just posting LinkedIn. I write on Livewire. So most of excerpts of my AFR columns are up on Livewire, which is excellent. And then, as I mentioned, I also write in the AFR online on Friday, in print on Saturday, 
Finally, you can go see our website at coolabarcapital.com, coolabarcapital.com. Nice. Nice one. Well, if people want to learn more about fixed income or follow Chris's insights and get some uh, big, bold predictions as he makes them, uh, you know where to go. So we'll jump into these final three questions. The first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? The short answer is no. <laughs> Fair enough. <Yeah. laughs> I haven't had an opportunity to think about these questions. The new book on Renaissance is really, really good. So this is again, so the uh, I think it's called the is it the Master of the Markets? I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's about yeah, yeah. Simons, yeah. Um, the mathematician who the, Jim Simons who found, the man so, who solved the markets. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, the man who solved the markets. That was awesome. That was a really, really interesting book because I run a lot of quants. You know, we have four PhDs internally. And, you know, I think one of the most powerful understandings when running quantitative processes is really appreciating their limitations. You know, everyone's, you know, human beings writing the code and that code is always going to be subjective. But yeah, that was awesome. Great. The manners of the markets. Another very, very good book was A Beautiful Mind, A Beautiful Mind by Sylvia Nasser on John Nash, the guy who developed the, uh, you know, Nash equilibrium in game theory. That really actually had a big impact on me, that book. And I think I'll probably leave it there for the time being. But I'm not, to be honest, I read a massive amount, but I try, I, I'm struggling to find good nonfiction these days. I read a massive amount for work. Hmm. And then when I'm on holiday, I don't really ever have holidays. I'm always working on holidays. But if I am sort of out of the office and it is like Christmas and I'm trying to decouple or you know, detune myself a little bit, I'll try and read some fiction, mm. which tends to be military fiction. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're, they're probably two interesting books. Nice I'm one. not going to wow you with my... Uh, <laughs> no, no, they're good recommendations. We'll, we'll add them to our, uh, our reading list. The next question we have is, what's your go-to source for investing or financial information? Yeah, good, good question. I use a combination, Bloomberg. So we pay about a million bucks a year to Bloomberg for, <laughs> for, for, uh, for like about 10 Bloomberg terminals, but Bloomberg and kind of something called Bloomberg AIM, which is their asset management system. But Bloomberg's awesome, really, really good. Mm. I also do the Wall Street Journal. So I read that every day. I read the Financial Times every day and the Fin is good. And then, of course, because you know we're trading with so many counterparties globally all the time, they're constantly feeding us their own research mm. and proprietary research. And then I have 11 analysts, five portfolio managers, four PhDs who do, are do pumping out research intraday all the time. We have a lot of our own internal quant systems. But I think yeah, the most important thing is just to surveil a rich range of information. Can't wait to get a Bloomberg terminal yeah, in my house. <laughs> that's the dream, yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, final question. If you think back to your early days as an investor, you know, when you were buying your first shares in Carpenter Pacific, what advice would you have for your younger self? About the shares or about life in general? Just uh, about investing and life, wherever you want to take it. Yeah, okay, what advice? Okay, I mean, this is a little bit idiosyncratic, but I was lucky enough to grow up in a a privileged environment, and that was a, a real curse in a way. On the one hand, it was a blessing, but I was kind of like a young lion sitting inside a zoo, and I didn't realize, no, I didn't really know how the world worked, and I was uh, very cocooned from that that world. And it actually took me most of my 20s to figure out the vagaries of the human condition and how the world works. So if I had my time again, or if I could advise my younger self, I spent most of my 20s you know, focused on really esoteric academic research uh, or involved in running a business that was engaged in fairly esoteric academic research. And that was great, but I would have started trading earlier. So again, I'm thinking of my feet here. I would, uh, you know, trade, if I'd started trading earlier, I think, uh, like I, I hate the fact that I'm 43 and, you know, I've probably only got another 20 good years of trading left ahead of me. So that would be one lesson. What else? Another lesson is that, like, I have this kind of uh, view that we have insiders and outsiders. So in my business, everyone's family, we're insiders. The outsiders is really the market. And the market is completely dispassionate, merciless, ruthless. And we are equally ruthless and dispassionate in in combating the market. Because as an active investor, every time I put on a position, effectively, I'm saying the market's wrong and I'm right, right? Because I think it's mispriced. And so we are we have a, a kind of maxim, which is that every basis point counts. It's kind of like a tagline on our brand. But it is true. Like we are just relentless and rapacious in trying to grind out every additional basis point and searching for value. And that that process sometimes feels trivial and sometimes you know, might appear a bit cosmetic. But that intensity of commitment never abates. And I think that's very very important. Otherwise, yeah, I think the most important lesson 
is actually the one we talked about at the start. And this is for me profound, and that is that um, I didn't have a lot of intellectual self-confidence, to be totally honest, during my teens. I remember in fourth grade, I came home and I said, Mum, I got 100% in my science exam. She says, oh, I'll believe it when I see it. Where's the exam? And I didn't have it. Um, and uh, so <laughs> she said, okay, we'll, we'll see tomorrow. And then I said to her, remember in year 11, I said to my mum, oh, you know, I really want to get above 90% of my HSE. And she's like, uh, don't aim too high. Let's be more realistic. And and so I didn't have a huge amount of self-confidence intellectually. And I really constantly surprised myself when I kind of was forced into situations where I had to confront problems I knew nothing about. I had no expertise in, no extent knowledge. And I found every single freaking time there was really original insight. There was innovation. There was edge lying inside, right? And so I am a massive believer in just getting the smartest guys I can lay my hands on who are functional, harmonious, you know, who can work in a cohesive team environment. And as a band of brothers or brothers and sisters, just tackling whatever problem we come across and tearing it to pieces and trying to find that inner truth. Because that's also like our mission is the search for the truth. Like, you know, what is fair value? What is fair value? You know, where are these asset prices going to converge to? And I have much more intellectual confidence now that we can solve pretty much any intractable, seemingly intractable problem. I guess a final observation would just be intensity of application. So I think, I don't know, I heard someone say to me the other day that Einstein said he wasn't the smartest guy. He just thought harder than everybody else and longer than everyone else about kind of nothing out of problem. Mm. And I think there's an enormous amount to be said about that. Like when I'm engrossed in a problem, I'm thinking about it like literally 24-7. I'm dreaming about it. When I put my head on the pillow at night, I'm thinking about it. When I wake in the morning, I'm thinking about it. And my guys know because they'll get emails at 3, 4, 5 a.m. every other day about problems. Um, It must be really, really good fun working with me. But um, (laughs) there's something to be said for, you know, in addition to having access to really kind of serious intellectual grant, it's really about the application. And you've just got to be – I always know that when I'm trying to solve a problem or if I'm thinking about an investment – if I've just done that first few iterations of analysis and you think you know everything, you think you're 80% of the way there, that's that's when you're in very dangerous territory because it's that final 20% of knowledge that can bite you in the ass and that you've got to get back to that essential truth. And that essential truth is not forthcoming. It's something that is very, very hard to extract. Love it, Chris. Some some really great comments there to finish out this interview. And we've really enjoyed sort of the last hour or so covering quite a, an extensive range of topics. So very much appreciate your time and, and sharing your experience and knowledge with our audience. It's been great. And we absolutely look forward to continuing to follow you in the press and on Livewire and wherever else you are. So a big thank you. Thank you, guys. The show's fantastic. I listen to it all the time. Massive admirers of your work. And, and thank you for having me on. It's a privilege. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.